1: Hey, welcome back to the Addiction Connection podcast. Today we are talking about the recognition of addiction and opioid use disorder. Although we do like to say that this is not edited and completely raw, this is take three for this episode number three out of a million. It's not just Kurt that can mess this stuff up. Anyway, so last week we had talked a lot about how addiction is a disease, the different ways that addiction is considered a disease. So today we're going to take that a little bit more in-depth and start with reminding you that addiction is displayed in terms of different behaviors that are both apparent, problematic, atypical. Again, not necessarily that choice, but that is the way that addiction is shown um, outwardly. But not only is addiction considered an outward thing that people see, it actually impacts people intrapersonally, so people's sense of self. So people who have the disease of addiction will have issues with their own self-image, their own self-respect, their own self-concept, their own self of efficacy. I get to start this part of the podcast because Kurt has no issues with his self-identity.
0: That is correct.
1: Yes. Further morbidity uh, takes it a step further and actually shows that addiction can affect interpersonal relationships. So patients and their families, their friends, their social relationships, their networks. Uh, You'll often see patients that just have no one left because they've just burned so many bridges. But then it also, of course, damages their finances, legal standings, employment, housing, schools, grades. It's just this whole network of things that just kind of all webs together very quickly.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really uh, interesting who's really at the highest risk for substance use disorders. And I think if you're going to characterize the group that has the highest risk, it's typically male, it's typically younger people, uh, often of course we'll see that in in patients who've had a history of incarceration uh you know and actually smoking and smoking is a very big predictor especially of opioid use disorder uh all by itself and of course i think the the most predictive thing of any substance use disorder is a previous substance use disorder so i think that's always something you want to notice in somebody's history obviously that history of uh childhood trauma can be very important in in the development of addictions and uh uh, really, when we when we look at patients as they get uh, as they get through those years from ten to twenty, uh, the younger they uh, start using substances, the more likely they are they to have problems.
1: I just want to say one thing with what you just said, Kurt is that whole childhood do, trauma.
0: Do I have a choice?
1: No, <laughs> childhood trauma. Um, this is that adverse childhood experiences, ACE scores. We'll get into that in a future podcast, really breaking down those kind of experiences, but it is definitely a thing. so
0: so, how do we really look for these things? These, there are certainly screening tools that exist for the uh, for looking for opioid use uh, risk. and uh, and really the biggest one of some of the bigger ones, the opioid risk tool, which is a five question uh, risk assessment. Probably the most common thing for us that we use on a daily basis is the dsm five criteria. And, of course, there's also uh, one that's called the Addiction Behaviors Checklist. But I think when we look at uh, what we tend to use in the clinic, and I think if you're doing buprenorphine, uh, you're using the DSM-5 as uh, getting a criteria for whether they're a a mild, moderate, or, um, boy, I'm having troubles today, Heather, mild, moderate, or severe opioid use disorder.
1: Boy, do they think you're having troubles. Wait till he, I'm giving him time right now to open the textbook and page through because Kurt still likes textbooks, <laughs> I thought you were going to hit
0: the crickets on me. <laughs> um, but it, on the DSM five, really, the things that it kind of talks about is uh, number one: do uh, do people use it in larger amounts, opioids in larger amounts over a longer period of time than they were intended to be used? Is there that persistent desire or or unsuccessful effort to stop or or cut down? I think that's something we see a lot, um, and that great uh, that a great deal of time is spent really obtaining them. At, attaining the opioids, uh, and we certainly see that in people who are a doctor shop, etc. Uh, often the, the cravings are, are a strong desire to use opioids. And one of the other criteria would be recurrent opioid use, uh, resulting in failure to fulfill major role obligations. And of course, this is affecting our work, our school, and things that are going on at home. Boy, I'm running out of air here, but we'll keep going. Uh, and again, that's a continued use of opioids, even though there's these recurrent interpersonal problems. You've got, you know, problems going on with your social or occupational or recreational activities that you normally would do. Often people give up all the things that they they really enjoyed doing early on. One of the things we'll see frequently is people using opioids when it's really physically hazardous, and, and that is uh, really an important criteria. And obviously that continued use, despite the fact that it's causing them uh, both physiologic and uh, uh, physical damage, but yet they continue to, to use uh, these, uh, these drugs. And, of course, tolerance is, is something that we talk about and, and that having withdrawal. So people that get withdrawal manifested by uh, all of the signs and symptoms that would be very characteristic of opioids.
1: So just to kind of make that sound a little bit more clear, because listing all 11, nobody can in their right mind remember them all, Um, just as a couple examples to think about when you're um, in clinic or seeing patients. um, You know, if a patient is buying illicit opioids on the streets, if they're going and getting heroin, they already meet four criteria straight off the bat. They're using opioids in larger amounts or more than they should have. They're spending time getting it. They're using despite this physical or interpersonal problems and um, these physically hazardous situations. So they have already met four criteria, so have a moderate use disorder just by buying heroin on the street.
0: And I think these simple ways that we can uh, categorize patients is important because if you just add the last two criteria, which are tolerance and withdrawal, that immediately puts people into the severe opioid use disorder category. So just a couple of simple things.
1: And if you wanted to take an example that doesn't have anything to do with street or illicit use, if a patient is coming in and deceiving you to get more opioids, so whether they're um, saying they're having more pain than they're really having or they're doctor shopping, that also meets four criteria and calls them a moderate use disorder.
0: Yep. So I think you know just so you don't have to remember the whole list although these are widely available just a couple of simple things and you can i think very quickly uh, decide where somebody's going to fall
1: so when you're looking at that and you're getting your diagnoses there's other things you can see in patients different signs different little clues that can kind of alert you um as we've mentioned, patients coming in or even asking for early refills of their medications, keeping in mind that if you get a refill early by three days every month, by the end of the year, you've gotten an entire extra month of meds. They're using more than they were prescribed rather than, you know, this quantity must last 30. Um, they're blasting through that much faster. They're running out early. They're borrowing medications. They're sharing them from people.
0: And I think that when you look at the uh, borrowing, often this is in in a one home, uh, and I can tell you, I recently had a case where uh, both uh, patients, actually the f- wife and the husband, both had medications, but the wife was frequently borrowing the husband's, and so this is right away um, kind of a red flag. And unfortunately, she overdosed and was found with his medication. So again, this happens on a frequent basis.
1: Yeah, and borrowing doesn't necessarily have to mean that the person you're borrowing from actually knows you're borrowing them that's correct and um, another sign which is actually probably really common is hoarding medication so you have a surgery and you have leftover meds in reality you're supposed to get rid of them bring them to a drop box or dispose of these opioids but when people use them save them and then the next time they have a, a little ache or pain use them That's actually inappropriate use and then other things, if you're seeing a patient in clinic and, and they don't want anything else, they're refusing other medications that are non-opioid, other therapies such as, you know, physical therapy, they actually ask by specific name saying only oxycodone works, not hydrocodone.
0: And not the generic.
1: And not the generic, only the name brand will work. If you look at their allergy list and they have an allergy for every single thing that isn't an opioid that can help with pain, that's going to be a little bit of a red flag. Um, And we always recommend getting previous uh, records um, from other providers if you can't get them in the health system to get them, you know, faxed to you. And if a patient's not going to let you get those previous records so you know what's been done for them in the past, a little bit of a red flag as well. Um, A little bit more obvious would be the urine drug screens, whether they're not wanting to give you a urine um, or it's unexpected um, when they do or they won't let you watch them pee.
0: And by unexpected, you mean what, Dr. Bell?
1: unexpected. They might not have the right med in their urine. They might not have any med in their urine. They might have something illicit in their urine. And then another kind of more anecdotal thing that we found is that if a patient is driving more than a half an hour to get to you, you are not that good of a doctor that they're willing to drive an hour or more to find you when they can pass by 60 other doctors on the way.
0: And even more anecdotally, in in our program, in our clinic, we found that people that were driving more than 30 30 miles, if they were driving by another clinic, uh, the chance that they would uh, fail their urine drug screens was extremely high. And so uh, we kind of use that in our clinic as kind of a red flag.
1: And then when you're actually looking at the patient, if they're slurring their speech, their pupils are super-duper pinpoint. As our good friend, the ever-famous Dr. Charlie Reznikoff said, the only things that really give you super-duper pinpoint pupils are the sun and um, opioids. Definitely something to be aware of. Um, anyway, gastroenteritis in the ER, people coming in with kind of nonspecific abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, things that look like opioid withdrawal, um, and they just maybe can't get their hands on opioids. So they come in with these nonspecific abdominal pains, um, fading out is, is kind of the, the street term for when you've used your opioids, you're kind of falling asleep. Um, they've had unexpected and unexplained weight loss. They have obvious sites of injection or track marks, um, And then just depending on the different substance, they might have different signs that you just need to be aware of.
0: Yeah, I think the weight loss is important for people to understand that that's something that we look at every time we see a patient who has a history of opioid use disorder, especially if they're on our medication-assisted treatment program. If suddenly they have a significant weight loss, that's something that that you want to be alerted to, and that's something that's going to make you really ask the tough questions. So let's talk a little bit about the the history as well. And and I think that sometimes in the history we'll see things that will really make us want to maybe talk to that patient a little bit more. And I and I think really a history of a previous substance use disorder, as I mentioned before, anytime they've had a history of alcohol use disorder, especially if these patients are now on chronic opioids, uh, their chance of having a, an issue I think is really very high. Uh, we frequently look to see if patients have had previous DUIs. Uh, whether they've had uh, child protection involved, uh, and all those all those kinds of things. I think often when we see f- certain patients, and if they have a, a very frequent history of uh, sexually transmitted diseases, you always want to consider the thought that potentially this is a patient that's being sexually trafficked, and we've had a number of those cases in our clinic.
1: Well, not only sex-trafficked, but sometimes patients who have a significant opioid use disorder um, will sell themselves or they'll, they'll use sexual favors to get their drugs. So it's just being aware of all these little things that can kind of point you in the right direction.
0: And of course, chronic pain. And, and really, if you look at the chronic pain group as a whole, probably a third a third of those patients have had a history of a, a use disorder uh, in their lifetime. And so really an important group to, to somewhat scrutinize. There's certainly those occupations that we see and other people see that are most linked uh, to uh, opioid use disorder. I think in our community, uh, we have a group uh, that does a lot of traveling and does a lot of work with trees, as far as tree trimming and and logging. They tend to be a very uh, uh, very strong presence as far as the heroin use disorders in our community. But really, when you look at construction workers, people who work in anesthesia, people that work around um, medications that can be accessible, so we always have to think about uh, looking closely at those patients if they're. Uh, if they're exhibiting any other signs. And, of course, family history. I think 50% of substance use disorders is probably genetic, and it's not uncommon for us to have patients who have multiple family members who also have an opioid use disorder. We have one family in our clinic that has three generations, and and I think that that's uh, really not an unusual thing. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between men and women. Uh, and I'm not going to give the sex talk here. I'm, I'm talking as it pertains to opioid use disorder. Although I
1: would really, really kind of like to hear how you um, differentiate men and women. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's hilarious. My kids are uh, in their late 20s. I haven't had to have that talk for a while. Uh, but if you look at uh, the difference between men and women when it comes to opioid use disorder, uh, you know, women tend to initiate substance use Later in life, but they have what we call telescoping. So, women tend to start later, but when they get going, they tend to get severe very quickly. As as opposed to men, uh, they tend to have more impairment. And interestingly, women are a little more less likely to actually uh, seek help uh, than men.
1: And gender differences, all these other health issue differences. Mental health is something that definitely cannot be overlooked. When you're looking at previous diagnoses when you're meeting patients, if they have a history of schizophrenia, they have a five times rate of having substance use disorders compared to the general population. Kurt will get into this in a minute, but it's it's really important to differentiate when these diagnoses happen um, in relation to their substance use, but straight to schizophrenia, very high risk of substance use disorder Bipolar women have a seven times higher chance of having addiction than non-bipolar women. So really getting an understanding of their true mental health diagnoses. But a lot of this can be very gray. There's a lot of overlap. Does one cause the other? Um, 30% of people with any psychiatric disorder, so generalized anxiety, social anxiety, generalized depression, seasonal affective depression, um, 30% of just any of those mental health diagnoses, 25% will have alcohol use disorder, 40% will have tobacco use disorder, 15% of them will have other drug use disorder. So really uh, making sure when you're seeing patients and evaluating patients that you're getting um, a full, thorough history on them for this. But then that begs to to ask the question of what came first? Are they using the substances to help their mental illness as to self-medicate? Or could the substance have caused their mental illness? So that's definitely something to to try to siphon out, although that can be very challenging.
0: Yeah, and if they, I think that uh, I find probably schizophrenia probably one of the most interesting things because we do see uh, many substances that will induce a very similar type of uh, uh, presentation. And, and I've actually had a couple of very interesting patients lately who uh, were smoking marijuana and developed hallucinations, uh, mostly auditory, and uh, one of them was actually in his 30s. And as soon as he stopped his uh, medication, that basically went away. But I think we we have to be careful not to not to assume that it's only the younger people that are that are smoking marijuana. When we see an older person who develops uh, uh, these uh, psychotic type symptoms, and I recently had a man in his uh, late 70s who had. Uh, using vape and he was using very high THC and uh, began having some significant auditory hallucinations, which uh, ended in a hospitalization. And And frequently these people will stop these, uh, stop these substances and they will within months uh, be without these symptoms uh, and their medications can sometimes be tapered. So uh, again, think about it even in the elderly, because uh, often now uh, with the legalization of marijuana, we will see uh, these types of symptoms.
1: And and with just to kind of finish that thought is, um, you know, a 70-year-old might remember, hey, when I was in my 20s, I smoked marijuana. But the marijuana that we have available and the THC levels of, of the marijuana we have now is so much different than in the past. Yep. Things have changed from your childhood days, Kurt. <laughs> well, there's
0: been a couple of things because now the cars don't all have stick shifts.
1: So, chronic- oh, I thought you meant like the flat stone running on the ground yourself kind of cars. Yeah,
0: that's that's the kind of car I had. So, with we'll just move on with chronic pain <laughs> and addiction, and talk a little bit about you know we need to understand that you know if we look at pain patients, probably three somewhere between three and twenty percent of these chronic pain patients have a comorbid uh, SUD, and often I think in reviewing the charts that we've reviewed over the years. Uh, most often I'd have to say we've run into a lot of patients who have alcohol use disorder uh, in patients that are on chronic uh, pain meds. Uh, there have certainly been some studies done with this, and it, there, there's actually a study done by, I'm going to murder this name, Bosca, Boscarino, um, and he used the DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder and found that roughly 35% of patients who received long-term opioid therapy uh, really for chronic pain had a lifetime uh, you know, had a lifetime uh, OUD. So 35% had a lifetime opioid use disorder. Uh, So I think it's important that we understand that even if they're being prescribed and we think we're doing a good job, we still need to really screen these patients. And in fact, uh, in the principles of addiction medicine uh, put out by ASAM, there was a quote in there that basically said most chronic pain is actually due less to peripheral uh, nociception than to central sensitization. So often we will see this central sensitization down the road uh, and, and patients will have pain that is uh, really not about the, uh, the the initial thing that they were started on pain meds for. Awesome. And lastly, now the CDC recommendations and even our state recommendations now really encourage us to look at these patients and to you know, do that screening. And I think we're seeing these patients now every three months, and I think it's really important to to look closely at the PMP and make sure that they're not doctor-shopping, important to do that that urine drug screening. Uh, in our state, it's uh, twice a uh, twice a year. I think CDC guidelines are once. But I think often we can be surprised by what we find in somebody's urine. So important to understand that the CDC recommends that. And I think for good reason, based on what percentage of patients who are on chronic pain meds, again, about 35% have a lifetime history of an OUD.
1: Right. And I think just not ever forgetting to just ask the patients how they're doing, If they think they're having troubles, if they think it would be helpful to taper off, and if they've maybe tried on their own, because sometimes patients do try and they just can't. And so really just involving the patients in that um, discussion.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I just saw a patient yesterday who's been on chronic pain meds for 20 years, and he actually said to me that he's no longer taking the pain medications for his pain because they don't help. He's basically taking them because he doesn't want to get sick. And he actually realized on his own that it was maybe time to be tapered off and came in to talk to me about that. So I, I think that those conversations with these patients can be quite interesting.
1: All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining. Um, I look forward to you uh, logging in next week. Um,
0: thank you so much for listening, and uh, see, you, see you next week.